Hey, welcome everybody. Um, so, to catch you up from last week, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, digital addictions, uh, sexual immorality, and, and forgiveness, and, and counseling, and um, all that kind of stuff. And we didn't get to two of the questions last week, and so we thought we'd start with them. We're going to start with one of them, uh, and then take a little uh, video break for about two and a half minutes just to lighten the mood for a minute, because then it's going to get really heavy. Um, and I just want to give you a small break before we do that. So uh, here's the first of the two questions that we did not get to last week about, um, you know, the, the, the pornography addiction and, and that stuff. Uh, in speaking about neural pathways and how they are built, how can one person become addicted while another doesn't? It is, easier, uh, is it easier for some to create those troughs than others? So really good insightful, interesting, and I think helpful question. Um, I, Bud Busby reminded me that the term we're talking about here is neuroplasticity. Anybody heard? Okay. So um, all of us have neural pathways. That's the first thing we need to understand. The question is what are they being developed by or for or with? Um, and the question assumes that some people develop certain neural pathways from some things and other people develop, I'm assuming that that's what the question assumes, and they are correct about that, that whoever asked this question is correct about that. Um, we all have neural pathways, though. And I would ar even argue that we all have a particular bent towards certain things. And not, not everybody's pet sin is going to be the same as anybody else's pet sin. And to prove my point, I'm going to pass the mic and have each of you tell us what your pet sin is. No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will say this about, about that. I, I can tell you that I have a tendency, I would have a tendency toward gambling. I, I experienced some gambling earlier in my adult life, and, and it was actually, it was at Turf Paradise. Anybody ever been there? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Tom's line, and it's mine too. I, I didn't know that there were horses that existed without numbers on them, but... Um, I, you know, I, I, I felt that jolt of winning occasionally, and, and uh, boy, that could be really dangerous. And so, uh, and then we had business in Las Vegas, and remember occasionally we'd go to the 21 tables when we were up there and, and stuff, and that was always fun. Jackie was always better at it than me, and I think that stopped my addiction right there. So, <laughs> but I know, I, I, I just, I, I could tell that I had a, I had a, and when I was at Paradise Valley Community Church, when I was the lead pastor there, let me tell you something. One of the biggest addictions we dealt with there was actually gambling. I haven't run into that much here, but at PVCC, we ran into a lot of guys with a gambling addiction problem. Um, I will also argue that uh, most men, because of the way their brains are wired, are susceptible to any addiction, to any trough-making that has anything to do with images, and that's why pornography is so powerful. So. I know that some people want to make the argument that, ah, it doesn't really, it's not, I'm not affected by it, it doesn't really bother me. I'm the exception. Mm -mm. No, my, my, my experience has been that you're really not the exception, and in fact, if you're claiming to be the exception, you probably have a problem. That's just been my experience. My favorite social science statistic is that uh, if you can get to 95% truth on any research, then you can start generalizing claims about the research. 
If you can say that 95% of the time, this is what happens. Social science is not hard science. If you can get to 95% of the time, this is what happens, uh, you can make a generalization, but you also have to caveat that um, one in 20 are gonna be the exception. Here's my favorite social science statistic. Research shows that 90% of us believe that we are the 5%, that we are the one in 20. We all think we're the exception, and that's our excuse. So you're not the exception. So if you're a guy, you have a tendency towards pornography. I would also argue, I would also argue that one of the things that has actually kept me away from pornography, and I don't know if this is a good thing um, or just a less worse thing, but one of the things that I think has maybe kept me away from pornography is that I really like hearts on the phone. The card game, hearts, I can win fairly regularly and when you win, you get a little dopamine jolt. It's the truth. And, and so, you know, if I'm in a meeting and they're not capturing my attention in the meeting, and I'm on my phone taking notes, I might be on, you know, the Hearts uh, card website on my phone. I'm just telling you. But maybe that's kept me from getting deeply involved. I don't know. Maybe it did. It's, it's something else. Remember we talked last week about you're going to build troughs, and so there's going to ha you're going to have other things. So there you go. Confessions of a pastor. Now, you know, just on Sunday morning, you're going to be looking at me going, that's the guy who's addicted to hearts. I don't know if we can trust him. So anyway, um, so yeah, you, everybody, everybody's going to build troughs, but everybody's going to be bent towards different things. But I would argue that generally most males are going to be uh, bent towards pornography one way or the other, especially if they see it and start to view it. So anything you might add to that? I have nothing. Okay, good, because I'm going to really <laughs> lean on you for the next question, all right? Okay. So let's go ahead and just, this, this video is very important, and, and I want especially the guys to listen hard to this video. You could be a real champ if you would just do to get real baby I know what love means to you mm. the party is through it's just me and you everyone has left our home girl we're finally alone wave goodbye to the guests you know what's next I understand We'll light your fire We've been married 20 years I know what you want, my dear I'll go get the vacuum And take it from here I'll clean up for you Like you want me to You see, turn off all the lights And I'll be all right now Lock the doors for you Sweep the floor for you And I'll put down the kids So you don't have to oh, Baby, slip into What you want Put your baggy sweatpants on Your favorite ones With a Nutella stain down the front Go watch some Apple TV Parks and Rec all down to baby, 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 
turn off all the lights And I'll be your wife And lock the doors for you Check the bathroom too And I'll put down the seat So you don't fall through Baby, baby Hey, thank you, California You did amazing One of the greatest marriage counselors ever, Tim Hawkins. So if you don't know who Tim Hawkins is, you can YouTube him, and, and he's got all kinds of really great stuff, and it's, uh, you know, it's appropriate for a Christian audience. Now, if you want some other stuff that's not, see me after the <laughs> class, and we'll be able to help you with that. Uh, let me pray, and we'll get to our second uh, question that's related to last week. Lord God, we thank you for your, uh, your love and your grace, uh, your riches in mercy, as Paul says. Uh, we're grateful for your sovereignty and your majesty. Uh, we just pray your blessing on this congregation. We're thankful for redemption and we're thankful for Arcadia. We're thankful for the ministry that you've given us. Uh, I pray that you would give us insight and I pray that you would give us a willingness to uh, really scratch at some hard things and, um, and find out uh, if, there's, if there are ways that the gospel can be applied to our pain and our, our struggles, our tribulation, and our forgiveness. God, that's what we're desiring tonight. We pray that you'd bless us in that and that you'd get all the glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's the second question, I think. Uh, I'm going to look back this way. My eyes are 59 years old now. So. <laughs> what if despite not going to therapy, the addict has replaced their behavior with something beneficial, spiritual, but... The victim is left feeling like the addict got to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, there were seemingly no repercussions on the addict's part, but the victim is filled with shame, resentment, anger, inability to trust, and the constant fear that the other shoe will drop and it will happen all over again. What then? Just let that sink in a few minutes or a few seconds. You want to start with that? Uh, sure. Um... I would want to start by saying that, yeah, this is incredibly hard. Um, and that my answer, as I formulate it, <laughs> is not going to gloss over that fact. Um, yeah. So, it, I mean, it's, you, can, you can feel and smell the pain in the question. And um, I don't think that... Um, we can overlook that, and we and, and it's and it's just going to be painful. It's just really going to be painful for both people. Um, there's a little hint in this question about that maybe this person um, that had the behavior um, kind of didn't maybe ask for forgiveness. It sounds a little bit to me because the person seems upset. Not that you shouldn't be upset, just it, it's that edge of upsetness, you know, where you're like, you know, at least you could do is ask for forgiveness so I could help you with this, you know. Um, so outside of that, let's say they did ask for forgiveness and you forgave them. Let's say that happened. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to go through this. You're just going to have to go through this. Um, 
I know it seems like there's no repercussions and, and that the addict's part, the, um, and that the victim is filled with shame and resentment, and anger, inability to trust, and the, um, and the fear, um, but they are too. So is the other person. Um, you're experiencing it in two different ways, but they, for, they are for sure as well. Um, unless this person is a monster, right? Person that you just, you know, they don't feel anything. And, um, but, but if you're in a relationship and you're married and, and um, something like this has happened to you, um, both of you are feeling this. You're not alone in feeling terrible. Um, so the more you continue to talk about it and uh, keep it up front, but not in an anger way, um, so that you can start to trust again, because we've all been there. We've hurt each other. We've, um, we've wronged each other. And, um, and so you do. You lose trust for a little bit. And that has to be rebuilt. Um, it doesn't just come back. And you don't just forget it all, and it goes away. And, and then we start again this day, and we'll never think of it again. That's, those things are just not true. So to a large degree, yeah, you, you just are going to have to pick it up every single day. And, and maybe every couple of minutes at first, you're going to have to say, okay, we're going to do this. And, you know, as long as the, the partner is um, reciprocating that and, and truly, you know, asked for forgiveness and wants forgiveness and, and is trying, then, yeah, your, your job is to keep going and, and trying every day and, and getting better at it every day. Um, I, betrayal happens in every relationship, and it comes in many different forms. This is one of the worst, I know. I understand that. And the pain is tremendous and immense, and that's understandable, too. We don't want to gloss over the, the pain and uh, the, the fact that that's just going to recur in our minds. Um, some people build troughs, though, for... Um, anger and violence and, and victimhood. That's also a, a truth, and you have to be careful of that. Um, it, it feels good to be able to say all the time, I was wronged, I was wronged, I was wrong. That, that's actually another way that dopamine gets produced. I'm not saying that's what's happening in this case. I'm just saying you better be careful of that. Um, and it is a choice every single time. It is a choice, a hard choice to forgive. And we talked a little bit about that last week. And, and, and I want to go back there again because I, I see in this a little bit of that, what we talked about last week again. Uh, the idea that, that um, there is forgiveness and then there are two completely separate issues uh, that aren't forgiveness. Uh, there's justice, and there's being made whole again, right? Now, now think about this, okay? Read the question. Again, I am making an observation, not a value statement. Please hear me in this, okay? I'm making an observation, not a value statement. But read the question, okay? Uh, if you were to read that question through the lens of justice, okay, they, they, they got to have their cake and eat it too, I feel like there needs to be some justice here. Okay, what would be just then? If, if, you're, if you're the victim in this, what would be just? Well, just think about that. Um, do, you get a, do you get to hit them 10 times in the face with a brick? Is that justice? Do you get to go and, and have an affair yourself? Is that justice? Do you see what I'm getting at? 
okay? So maybe that would be justice, but would that help the matter any? It's not fair, I know, but it, it, it just it wouldn't help the, the matter at all. And, and here you go. Did Jesus say that when you have been wronged, you are to seek justice? You know, find me the verse for that. And I know, that's the yearbook answer, Frank. That's really easy to say what Jesus said. I know, it's easy to say what Jesus said. It's hard to actually go and do it, but that's what he calls us to. That's the power of the gospel, and that's, that's the hard truth. He, he, in fact, he, he kind of says just the reverse of, of justice. Uh, let me see. Let's see. Romans 12. This is generally most people's favorite passage of Scripture. Okay. Um, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For, do, for, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's hard, isn't it? That's, that's really hard. Think, just, just here you go. Think about the human condition. You're in traffic, and somebody cuts you off. In the, in the eternal scheme of things, how big of a deal was that really? Right? But how angry do we get? See, we're, we're, we are built in our fallen state. We are built for revenge and justice when we are, when we are uh, wronged. But when we wrong somebody else, we are built for mercy and grace. Isn't that interesting? You think about that? Jesus says you need to forgive others just as Christ has forgiven you. Maybe you didn't betray your romantic partner, but you have sinned in other ways as well. Would you like Jesus to withhold his forgiveness for you? Now, I know, again, I know. Uh, you could make the argument. I understand that it was easier for Jesus to forgive because he's God. <laughs> you know, that's what he's supposed to do, Okay. And we're sinful, that makes it harder for us to do that. I recognize that. And yet, that's what he calls us to in the power of the gospel, the filling of, of the Holy Spirit. The other part of it is, how do you get made whole in this situation? Okay, so if I get betrayed, I've, how many of you have ever been betrayed by anybody? Anybody? Anybody ever been betrayed? Okay, all of us have been betrayed, right? Explain how are you made whole when you've been betrayed? How? How do you get made whole? Is, is there a formula for it? You know? It, the only time I ever saw a show actually deal with this was, was in the office when Pam wanted to hit Michael Scott for dating his mother. Remember that? Her mother. Uh, his mother, yeah. Her mother, her mother. yeah. Right. Something like that. You know what I'm talking about if you watch The Office. The rest of you watch Arrested Development, and we're praying for you, okay? Hi, Cody. <laughs> um, so, again, slow down and think about this. Okay, this is the hard work of forgiving. Remember how we define forgiving? Okay. You've been sinned against. You've been offended. You've been fragmented. Okay. 
you've been betrayed. Forgiveness is now you eating it as well. I mean, I don't, I don't know any other way to say it. You now have to eat the offense. That's forgiveness. You're giving up on justice and being made whole, and that's what forgiveness is. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. I'm not denying that it isn't hard, and I'm not denying that you don't have to do it every single day. And some days you're just going to go, forget it. I'm just going to be mad. I get that. Yeah. that there are going to be days like that. But, but that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. And, and, and I know how hard that is. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say that um, when we, make, we have to make the choice every single time. We have, you have to keep making that choice every single time. Because if you, if you take this further out, okay, you're, you've had this issue, whatever issue it is, and you can't seem to get over it or you're going to be mad about it. Okay, so now we're talking about divorce, right? We're talking about ways out. How do I get out of this? Um, you know, you did this to me, so now I feel okay about getting out of it because now you've, you've done an ultimate hurt to me, um, things like that. Um, we start to go down those paths. We start to think them out. We start to um, even pursue them in certain ways by kind of spreading it to friends and family. Well, this happened, and so I'm really hurt. And, and then they get on your side and, and all these things. And so we start to walk down these paths, even if we're in our mind thinking, I would never do that. That won't happen. You know, but you start to kind of feel it out a little bit and get some people angry enough with you and, and things like that. So you, you have to choose to eat the sins and, and, and push through and decide and remember how much you're forgiven. I mean, I, that, I start, I try to start a lot of days that way. Um, you know, days where we're, yeah. <laughs> no, but, you know, constantly remembering how much you've been forgiven. And I know I went all bible on you, but it's, it is the truth. Because um, when we start to to seek and, and go after these things, it changes who we are and it changes the way that we're looking at life. It changes the way we're looking at our relationship. We start to act differently. Um, and so if, if that's not a place you want to go, then you can't allow yourself to go there even a little bit. You can get mad and have your moment to cry and scream, but then you got to turn it around and say, okay, what am I going to do? What do I want my life to look like? What choices am I going to make? Um, you could divorce this person. You could leave this person. You can, I mean, you know, it happens all the time, right? But um, think about that then. You're now a broken person who is going to go into the next relationship still carrying that bag of distrust and all those things. But you've also now left behind all the things that you did have and that you built together, the moments that you've had the um, kids you've had, all those things that you cannot reproduce those, those moments ever again. And you have them with a person that you chose, that you do love, but you're just having a hard time right now. So you, you do the things we talked about last week. You know, maybe you have to seek out a counselor. Um, you need to go to your pastor and spend time with him. You need to find a good mentor, someone who's really not in your relationship. Um, things like that, but, but it, it truly is deciding what you want it to look like and then going after it. That's a great point. Um, what, what if, despite not going through therapy, okay, the way I'm reading that and interpreting that is that 
he sinned against her, and he didn't go to therapy, and he's on a better path now, but she's worried. Um, she, she could benefit from having somebody to be able to talk to, somebody who knows about this stuff and does this for a living. Um, we have, uh, I, I know they're in Gilbert and Peoria. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but it's called Life, Life Song Counseling Center. And uh, it's uh, primarily a practice made up of women. And they are really good, really good. Uh, and it's just uh, lifesongcounselingcenter.com, I believe, is, is the... Uh, uh, one of them's a colleague of mine at, at Fuller Seminary. Uh, she and I both taught there as adjunct instructors. Uh, another one who's, th that's uh, Wendy out in Gilbert. Another one who's in um, Peoria was actually a student of mine at Fuller. She took my communication classes and, and uh, just really, really very, very helpful. They're very good at what they do. We also have um, counselors in this congregation who have practices that we can refer you to as well. Um, but that might be helpful. Life Song specifically, though, really deals with a lot of this, a lot of the pain and hurt that women go through, and they're very good at it and very helpful. So that would be something. Again, uh, and I, you know, I, I'm sorry, I tend toward this. I tend to, I think we're a culture of trying to get to the good news way too fast uh, without really dealing with the bad news. Um, we are born as betrayers. Uh, that theologically, we, you have to understand, we read scripture, we understand that we are not born with a clean slate, and then we begin to eventually figure out how to sin because our parents taught us how to lie. How many of you parents had to teach your kids how to lie? Okay, see, you understand, we're born for that. We are born into sin. We are conceived, David says, in sin. So we are born to uh, betray and, and so you're going you're gonna to experience and suffer betrayal in every relationship uh, that you're, you're ever going to be in. And, and if you just keep running from those relationships of betrayal, you're going to go to new relationships. And as you get older and you have more relationships, you're going to have a history of baggage that you're going to keep carrying into a new relationship, making that relationship even worse. And believe me, you may have been the victim, but you'll make that relationship worse because of the baggage you bring in. And it seems like hard work, but actually it's less work to work it out with the person you're already with. As Jackie said, all, you're going to leave behind all the good stuff that you, that you have with that person. Uh, when Jackie and I first got together, we were really in love, right? Well, I was anyway. So <laughs> we were really in love. But Jackie will tell you that um, I was, I'm older. I'm eight years older than her. And, and I brought some real hurt into the relationship. And here's one of the things that we had to get past. I would assume that she was either going to do or was doing to me things that past relationships had done to me. And she hadn't done them and wasn't planning on doing them, but I assumed, I assumed that she was, and so I began to treat her like she was. How fun was that for you? It was great. Yeah. yeah. But you, you get that? My baggage, I, I was hurt from other relationships. I brought that in, and, and she's the one that incurred the, the, the downside of that. That's, that's not very much fun, right? And, and so... Here's, here you go. You understand that second marriages fail at a much higher rate than first marriages. Third marriages fail at a much higher rate than second marriages, and so on down the line. Can you guess why? 
Baggage. Baggage. You know? There's, there's a school of thought that says it's better to get married younger than old. Everybody, oh, you got to wait till you... There's a school of thought. I'm, this is just an observation. I'm just telling you. There's a school of thought that says the earlier you get married, the less baggage you have to deal with and the stronger bonds you can build because you don't have to get through a bunch of that stuff. So uh, think in terms of that as well. A couple of other things. I, I'm, I'm going to lean on this for a little while before we get to the seasons of life stuff because I think this is really, I do think this is important and I think that there are a lot of people who aren't asking this, this question uh, and would like to hear more about it. Um, that's just my sense, my pastoral intuition. Um, you remember your vows at your, at your wedding? Yeah, I, do, I do a ton of weddings. We have a, I love it. It's, we're a demographically young congregation. I do a ton of weddings. And, and the vows are really an important thing. That's one of the things that I actually have to get approval from, from, the, from the couple. They, they don't care about a lot of other things, but they want to see the vows, you know? And, and they've never rejected my vows. Sometimes they'll say, we want to add our own personal ones, which is great. Um, as long as they don't talk about Satan in a favorable way, I'm good with whatever they have for their <laughs> personal vows, you know. Um, but think about those vows. Okay, remember standing at the altar, for better or worse. Okay, it, it, I agree with this. Here's what Keller and Schrader um, I don't know Tim Keller personally, wish I did, but I do know Schrader personally, both of them very wise. Here's what they would both say. When you hear, at, when you're standing at the altar and you hear for better or worse, what's going on in your mind is, yeah, yeah, for better or worse, but it's always going to be better for us. When you hear for richer or poorer, you hear, yeah, yeah, richer or poorer, but we're always going to be fine financially. That's what you hear. You never assume the downside of any of those vows. How about in sickness and in health? Everybody assumes that your health is going to be great. You're never going to have to deal with the downside of bad health. And then, you know, a lot of people bail when, when the health goes bad, especially if it's, if it's earlier than expected because we assume that everything's just going to be fine. You, you know, when you get married, you're generally pretty healthy, right? You feel like you're marrying a finished product, and you're not. You're not. So, so we assume that those vows really, we're, we're not going to have to deal with too many of those negative vows. It's, it's going to be all the positive vows. And, and then we get surprised when, when, when it becomes challenging and hard. I, I want to tell you a, a little story, and, and I know that Tom would be okay with me telling this story, Tom Schrader. Uh, Tom was married for 30 years to Susan, his wife Susan. She was a great woman, a truly great woman. You knew Susan. Yep. Uh, she was just amazing. They weren't Christians when they got married. What a, what a great story. Um, and, and oddly enough, usually it's the story the, is the other way, but oddly enough, Tom was the one who became the Christian first. Um, usually it's the woman who does, who does first, but he became the Christian first at a Larry Wright Bible study on March 6, 1980. Um, and some of you remember Larry Wright, too. And um, he came home and told her, and by the way, their marriage was in trouble. They, they, they got back from the um, honeymoon, and two weeks later, they were talking about divorce. And, and then he went to this Bible study, and he was saved. And uh, he came home, and he told Susan that, you know, he became a Christian. And she said, Tom, how many pairs of running shoes do you have in the closet? He said three. He said, have you ever used any of them? No. She said, 
this isn't going to last. She told him, this isn't going to last. But he hung in there with it, and the next thing you know, she started going to Bible studies with him, and she becomes, she, she gets saved, and then they become this incredible light in the valley for 30 years. Just amazing. Um, in their 24th year of marriage, uh, they, were, they were taking a walk in Cannon Beach in, in Oregon, and um, Tom said, you know, to Susan, he said, you know, barring any major catastrophe, uh, we're pretty well, we're in good shape. We're going we're gonna to be able to finish well and ride this thing out. And a month later, uh, Susan said that she had developed some pain that she didn't understand, and she went in to get checked, and you know, one thing led to another, and, and she was diagnosed with something called inflammatory breast cancer, which is the most deadly kind of breast cancer. Uh, they immediately did um, double mastectomy. 95% um, uh, of people who are diagnosed with um, uh, inflammatory breast cancer uh, live more than six months, 5%. And uh, they told her, you, you've probably got six months to live, get your affairs in order. And uh, she lived for seven years. She was a fighter, man. She lived for seven years. And, and Tom took care of her. Uh, he was her primary caregiver during all of that. And um, unfortunately today, I think we're seeing the effects of that right now with Tom's health. Uh, literally, Susan's illness uh, took years off of Tom's life. People would ask Tom all the time, though, how do you do it? How, this is a terrible life now that you have. How do you do it? And he would always say, this is what I signed up for, for better or worse, in sickness and in health. This is what I signed up for. This is the whole point. It's easy to love somebody when they're lovable. It's easy to respect somebody when they're re respectable. This is what we're called to, though. And he did that for seven years. And, and then he buried Susan. The story doesn't end there. Um, and uh, about six months later, he met a woman named Sandy at Redemption Tempe. And... Uh, they had coffee and were talking about ministry stuff. And the next time they had coffee, they talked about relationship stuff. And one thing led to another. And about six months later, uh, Sandy and Tom got married on the top of the uh, Valley Ho. And Tyler Johnson was the officiant, his son. And, um, and they got married. They got married about six years ago. And right after they got married, like two months after they got married, Tom was diagnosed with lupus. Uh, and then he had, uh, he was getting ready to speak at Scottsdale Bible one Sunday morning. And if you don't know that how awful lupus is, just look it up. It's awful. And um, uh, he was getting ready to preach after that diagnosis and all the medication and everything. He was getting ready to preach at, uh, one morning at uh, Scottsdale Bible. And um, he, he had a spell, and they had to take him to the hospital, and... A couple hours later, quadruple bypass surgery at uh, Scottsdale North, what the, the hospital formerly known as Scottsdale North, and uh, quadruple bypass surgery. It took him a year to recover from that. Uh, and then after he had recovered from that, uh, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and they had to remove his prostate, and that was a long uh, process. 
And now, Tom, um, he, his generally, he's, his standing heart rate is in the hundreds. Um, he has a hard time getting his breath. Um, he, he's, he's really struggling. Uh, Sandy is, is 16 years younger than him. She's a, uh, uh, she was an Olympic-trained swimmer, and she still swims. She runs. She lifts weights. Um, people look at her arms and, and, and lust for her arms. You know, they want arms like hers. Um, she's active. She's got a job. She's busy. She's running around. And, and you know, people ask Sandy, how can you do this? You know, I mean, Tom obviously married up, and Tom will tell you that he married up. I, I, you, you get married to this guy, and two months later, you're his, you're his primary caregiver. How do you do this? And you know what she said? This is what I signed up for for better or worse, in sickness and in health. And, and I know, I, I know, well, sickness is something else, though. This is, this is sexual emotional pain. I, I know, they're not the same thing. But all of it is a betrayal of some sort. It's the betrayal of sin. The reason we suffer through sickness is because of, because of sin, because of the corruption that, of original sin. All of this is, is a result of sin. You're never going to be able to get away from this sin. Anything else to add? Uh, no, I no, I don't think so. Could I add one more thing? I'm sorry. And then we'll get to this next question, which I think is a really important question. Uh, but I see this, I see this related here, and this is something that I teach in my Com 100 class, um, sort of in a in a covert way, um, letting people know about relationships and stuff. But this is actually. True, especially true, I get this from the Bible about uh, what I call the five loves. So well, let's go ahead and bring up that, that slide. Um, I, I, I had this for, for next week, uh, ready to go next week, but I thought we'd do it, uh, I just thought we'd do it tonight because I think this, this relates. Um, so there are actually five loves that are involved in, in romantic love. It's, it's not just the feeling of love or not. There, there are five different loves that we are engaged with. And, and I think it would be, it's helped me to understand them anyway. The first is eros. And you can see that word in the Bible quite a bit. Um, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Song of Solomon, the Greek word eros is all over the place. Because eros love is love that's rooted in beauty and sensuality. It's sexual love. Think, what English word do you think we get from eros? Erotic, yeah. Okay. Now, understand that eros love is a love that is rooted in the worthiness of the object being loved. Do you understand that? You are attracted, physically attracted in some way to that person. So your love for them is rooted in their worthiness. Okay, and it's a really important love. Paul talks about this love in 1 Corinthians 7. How many of you have read 1 Corinthians 7, the first five verses? You're supposed to be making love if you're married. Eros love. The second one is ludos love. Ludos is entertainment and excitement. Ludos love is is the fact that Jackie and I have fun together. We enjoy being together. We have affinity. We're friends. We love going to hockey games together and, and taking walks and, 
and, and shopping together. Now, she's a great volleyball player, and they pay me to stay off the court, so she plays volleyball. She hates running. I like to run and hike, so I do that. But we have a lot of, we have a lot of this ludos love in our, in our relationship, and I would argue that's important, too. I heard one, one person once teach that your, your, your spouse should not be your best friend. I, I don't know that that's right. Jackie's my best friend. I, no offense to any of you. I love all of you, and some of you I spend a lot of time with, but if I, have, if I have an hour free, the first person I want to try and spend it with is Jackie because of Ludas, okay? Third, storge love. This is love that uh, isn't quite present in the beginning necessarily because it's something that needs to be developed over time as you, as you build trust, as you forgive each other, as you live in environments of grace, um, as you build your relationship, it's slow, peaceful, and secure. And here you go. This question that was, that was asked last week that we just got to, that storge love has been broken desperately in this case. So that's the one that's really painful right now. Uh, Jackie and I have been married more than 30 years. This is, this is one of the best loves. I, when we got married and we were standing on the altar, I, I could have cared less about this, this love. You know, now it's one of the most important loves. By the way, let me say this about Ludos and Storge. Just like Eros, um, Ludos love is rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved. You, you see that? Okay, I have this Ludos love for Jackie because without her, she's integral to me having entertainment and excitement in my life. Friendship, affinity, partnership, right? Same thing with Storge. I don't have Storge Without storge love is rooted in the worthiness of Jackie to be loved. Okay, I want you to follow that. That's very important. Uh, then pragma love. There's a love called pragma. Guess what word we get from pragma? Pragmatic. This is a love that is practical and utilitarian. Okay? It's, it's the love that, that where you know your roles you, 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 uh, you you're able to complete each other's sentences. One time, about uh, eight years ago, we were in different places in, in the valley on our phones trying to figure out where we were going to get together. And she said to me, I'll tell you what, I'll meet you at the place by the thing where we went that time. And I said, okay, I'll see you there. <laughs> That's pragma love. It's one plus one equals three. It, we just, we work well together. We're, we're, it's, it's, it's gospel biblical math. Okay, and, and sometimes that takes a little time to develop, but that's a great love. But again, it's rooted in the worthiness of Jackie for me. Okay, and then there's the last one, agape. Now, please hear me. This is not the five love languages. This is the five loves. Those are two completely different things. Gary Chapman, great book. You should read it. It's a completely different thing, though. So agape love. This is unconditional, selfless Compassionate love. You see where this is going now? Okay. This love has nothing to do with the worthiness of the one being loved. Nothing. This is the love that we have for others because Christ loved us in our unworthiness. This is the love that drove Jesus to go to the cross. He did not see anything worthy in us to go to the cross, but because of his character, his holy character, a character of grace 
unconditional love, richness and mercy, Paul tells us. He went to the cross for us, and that's how we are called to love in marriage. In, in Ephesians 5, when it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The word is agape. It's not eros. I know a lot of you would like it to be eros. It's not. Go to 1 Corinthians 7 for that. It's agape. Paul, Paul says, here's what Paul is saying. In Christ, you are to love your wife even and especially when she's unlovable. I know that would never happen for some of you, but yes, you are unlovable sometimes. And that's when it really counts. That's when it really counts. Here you go. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say about our enemies? Did he say... Ludos, our enemies, pragma, our enemies, eros, our enemies. He said agape. Here you go. I love this. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, love your enemies, he's tipping his hand. He's admitting, there's nothing in your enemy worthy of being loved. Love them anyway, because I loved you. So this is, here's the deal. You can have eros, ludos, storge, and pragma, and if you don't have agape, you won't make it. You won't. Because there are going to be times when you need agape and those other four won't work. Now, here's some irony about this. Eros, how many people try to build a, a, a lasting, sustainable, romantic relationship just on eros love in our culture today? A ton of people try to do that, right? Right? You realize that's unsustainable. You, can't, you cannot sustain a romantic relationship on eros love alone. It can be fun for a while, but you can't sustain it. You, you can't do it without the other four, and especially without agape. But here's the irony. If you don't have eros love, you can't sustain the relationship. Now, there may be some physical reasons why you can't do it, but I'm talking about uh, young, uh, physically fit, um, woke couples <laughs> who are not making love. Uh, one of the questions that we might get to on the third night, one of the questions that we might get to then is, uh, what, what, are the, what are the three or four most um, common things that you deal with in, in people who are married, in post-marital counseling? Uh, and this is one of them. It's so sad. This is one of them. Uh, you'll have a couple, and it leads perfectly into our next question, but you'll have a couple, and, and they're in their late 20s or early 30s, and they're having all these problems, and, you know, she's this, and he's that, and communication, and this and that, and chores, and, you know, all that, and they're mad at each other. And at some point, I'll look at them. So this, is, this will give you a little idea how pastoral counseling goes if you ever come see me. Um, at some point, I'll look at them. I'll say, I, how often are you making love? And boy, they, everybody has a tell if, if, if that's not going on. And a lot of them, it's not going on. They have a tell. They immediately avert their eyes in some way. They look down. They look away. They're embarrassed. They're embarrassed. And then they'll kind of sneak a peek at each other. And, and here are some examples of answers I've had. This is over the last 20 years. Here are some examples. Maybe once a month. 
maybe once every three months? Here's one answer I got. Uh, we do it once a year, and it's on the same day every year. He didn't hesitate. He just, right away, he said, once a year, we do it on the same day every year. That's our, that's our agreement. And, 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 everyone, and then, after that happens, I hope you're tracking with me on this. this. I know, it's awkward for some of you, but this is really important, okay? Almost immediately after the answer, then they start with this. They go, but if we could get all these other things fixed, if we could get this fixed and this fixed and this fixed and this fixed, then this will start happening again. I'm sure of it. And I say, you got it backwards. You actually have it backwards. Some of you are going to walk out of here tonight and go, my pastor is sex crazed. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm just telling you the biblical truth. God created this, and it is good, and it is meant to be shared. Paul David Tripp even goes so far as to say it's an act of worship for a married couple. It's an act of worship. And you've got it backwards. I'm not saying that if you're making love, you're not going to have these other problems. I am saying, though, that if you're making love, these other problems don't seem as overwhelming. And now you're communicating at least physically. And that can start you communicating in other ways as well. It breaks the ice. It sort of melts things down a little bit. It doesn't mean you don't have those other issues, but it makes them less overwhelming and easier to deal with. And, and there, there isn't a single uh, that I could ever find uh, psychologists that would disagree with me on this. Do uh, you have any thoughts on that? I, I'm just, I would just add that if you get that in the right order, you're working together towards things and you feel more bonded to each other. And so the harder, the hard stuff is, is you working together to do that instead of, well, here's my idea about it and here's my idea about it. And sometimes they even clash, but it just helps you to, to stay together on things because you, you physically feel more together too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, should we talk about scheduling it? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a question. I know, but we'll get into it in this next question anyway. So okay. we'll get to it. All right. Um, so that kind of leads into this next, this is a, this is a big deal. We got a ton of questions like this but I picked this one because I think there's something in this question that really gets at, uh, I, I, th there is an insight in this question that I thought was really helpful, okay? Um, early marriage, young kids, and peak career growth demands collide together on many married couples at the same time. This leaves little downtime and a lack of energy for much else. What specifically worked for you to be intentional with your spouse to focus on the health of your marriage? Did you have daily or weekly routines that allowed you to connect? Here's the part I liked. Aside from date nights that worked well for you. So whoever submitted this has heard, oh, just have a date night. Boom, <laughs> Band-Aid. And, and by the way, I, we're all for date nights. Yeah. I would include that as part of it. But this is a good insight because uh, what this person is saying is we need more than just a date night. And, and what else can we do? And that's a really good insight. So mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll let you start with, with this one, if you, if you don't mind. Is that all right? Um, sure, yeah. Maybe um, talk a little bit about the sanctuary thing. That, mm -hmm. You know, but just go ahead. Um, early marriage, young kids, peak career growth demands <laughs> collide together. We're past this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 
that's sort of that um, couple of years into your marriage kind of point. Um, and um, yes, it, it's very hard. But again, um, I, I would say that for us, we, um, we kind of felt that happening, D had no knowledge of anything, but felt that all happening to us, and um, ultimately decided we had to make some um, decisions. We had to um, decide we couldn't have it all, decide that we couldn't do it all, and we didn't have time for it all. So um, we had to look at it and really say, okay, what's the most important here? We have two little kids. What's the most important? Well, our kids and our family and keeping us together so that, so that we can keep our family unit together because that's what's important to us. And so we just started to have to make decisions because, yeah, it's really hard. And every, hard decisions. Yeah, and every one of these things, the kids, your career, your marriage, are all demanding to be first. So how does that even work mathematically? <laughs> something's, you know, something's going to have to give. So um, I think you have to look at this as a couple and decide um, what do we want? What's the most important? And one of the questions that we asked each other and also um, repeatedly do, even now, as our because your, your family life and your work life and everything keeps changing, um, is how are we doing? And in the next five years, what do we want it to look like? And, maybe, and let me just say, we ask that every six months. Yeah. And maybe even five years in the fast-paced world is too long. Maybe you need to be looking at it in two-year segments. It kind of depends where you're at. If you're in school, you're probably on a four-year segment. If you're, you know, um, but, but we kept asking ourselves that and saying, well, what, what do we want it to look like? And, how do, and, and we would go way out farther than that. We would say at this point in our lives right now, where we are now, where, we have, where, um, where our kids are kind of mostly totally on their own, but what do we want that to look like? When, when that happens, I mean, there's people all around you that are examples, right? So what do we want that to look like? And we were both very um, interested <laughs> in having our kids want to be around us still. You know, you spend all this time on them, and then they just go away. <laughs> you know, and it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I did all that work. <laughs> so, and we, we, and we, and it made us um, more pointed in the moments First of all, because everything we looked at was like, well, what do we, if, if I do this, what will it make that look like? So every decision we made along the way, hopefully every, not everyone, some of them was just like, sit down, we can't do anything about it. But for the most part, it was to say, okay, if we do this, what repercussions does it have for us? And so we made a lot of hard decisions. Um, I didn't work for a long time. Um, and I love working. Not full-time. Not full-time. Full full I did things on the, on the side that I could do. I worked out of my house. I worked part-time. Um, I took on different types of jobs. I took on jobs where um, I would work when the kids were at school, and I would be home when they came home so that we didn't have to have a sitter or we didn't have to pay extra for this or for that or, or have to go out to dinner every night so that we could, so that we could, you know, so I didn't have to have a job every minute. Um, and, and those decisions were hard, and yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But I think once you sit together and you say, what do we want it to look like? How, and, and really, really important is how do we want to feel as we're going through it to get to that point? 
I don't want to be miserable. I don't want to be running around with my hair on fire. I don't, I don't want to miss the little, I call it couch time with my family. I, I don't want to miss those moments. And so I have to make a decision. What do I want it to look like and how am I going to get there and how do I want it to feel? Um, what else? Talk it's about a the long sanctuary. question. Talk, yeah, it is. Um, or do you want to wait and let me, let me hit a couple things? And, yeah, think about the sanctuary okay. thing. Okay. Um, I don't know if anybody knows this. What are the two uh, most likely years that people will get divorced in their marriage? Anybody know? Seven, and what's the second most? 25. Seven and 25. Anybody know why? Yeah, that's exactly right. So seven is a direct result of this question right here. It just becomes too much, and that's a way out. But 25 is also the mistake that some parents will make when they make their kids their entire life. And then the kids are gone and they look at each other and they go, I don't even really know you or like you. <laughs> that happens a lot. And now I have to spend all my time with and you. And now I have to spend all my time with you. Yeah, <laughs> happens a lot. Um, read Ecclesiastes 3 sometime. Those of you who are older, you remember in 1965, I believe, there was a very popular song by the rock band The Birds uh, called Turn, Turn, Turn. In everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, Okay, turn. they got it. Okay. <laughs> Nobody wants me to sing at church. It's just not fair. I love singing, but I stink at it. Okay. And, and then what they did was they just... They just uh, sang Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time of hope and there's a time of sorrow. There's a time of sowing. There's a time of reaping. There's a time of joy. There's a time of, uh, of, so of um, mourning. There's all the way down. And here's what Solomon was saying there. He's saying life has seasons. And there are going to be great seasons and there are going to be really hard seasons. And... What we want to do as human beings is we want the great seasons, we want to hang on to the great seasons and make them last longer than they're supposed to. And, and then we get frustrated and we make bad decisions because we want the great season to last longer than it's supposed to. And then uh, when we have a hard season, we want that one to go away. And so we end up um, trying to figure out how to get rid of that hard season and, and we make bad decisions in the midst of the hard season rather than embracing every season on its own terms and counting on the power of God to get us through those seasons, okay? So one of the challenges is that this is a tough season, and Jackie talked about having to make some decisions. There's a guy named Andy Stanley. Some of you older people might know uh, his father is Charles Stanley. Andy Stanley's my age, um, maybe a couple years younger. He planted, years ago, he planted a church in Atlanta called North Point. It's a church of about 30,000 people now, multiple campuses. He is an incredible communicator. He's written a number of, of books as well. Uh, maybe the best book I've ever read that he's, that he's written is, is a book called Choosing to Cheat. And, and what he does is he lists like the seven areas of, of life that we all um, really have to have. So sleep, uh, work, family, uh, spiritual health, God, church, all that, uh, physical health, so Fitness, working out, exercise, that sort of thing, um, nutrition and, and diet, uh, and then um, uh, Sabbath, leisure time, 
recreation time, not recreation time, but recreation time. Whatever they are, I, you get the idea. There's, there's seven of these categories. Now think about this, especially those of you who are young marrieds with young families. There are 168 hours in the week. In order to do all seven of those things really well, how many hours in a week is it going to take? 250, 300 hours, right? Right? So he says, and he makes this point, and he's right, you're going to cheat something. And you, you can either allow yourself to drift towards cheating something what happens when you drift towards a decision? Is that, are those the best decisions that you make where you just kind of let it happen and you drift towards something? You never make your best decisions when you drift toward them. Nobody drifts towards righteousness. Nobody drifts towards discipleship. Nobody drifts toward um, good physical health. Nobody drifts toward nutrition. You ever notice that? I drift toward donuts and ice cream. That's what <laughs> I drift towards. I have to make a decision to stay away from those. So he says, you have to choose what you're going to cheat. And here you go. In different seasons of your life, you're going to cheat different things. So 15 years ago, what I chose to cheat was sleep. I was getting by on about five hours of sleep at night, which is not very much for somebody wired the way I am. But that's what I chose to cheat in order to be at all of my kids' things, volleyball and everything, in order to have a, a, a pretty good relationship with Jackie, to be able to nurture that, in order to be able to work out and run marathons, in order to be able to lead a church. I chose during that time to cheat sleep. I'm a little older now. I really can't cheat sleep. And I actually don't have to anymore because our children are grown now. So I don't have to cheat sleep anymore. Occasionally I need to. Um, but I don't have to anymore, so I'm cheat. And by the way, during that time, too, I also, you could say, I cheated the church. Andy Stanley, when his kids were little, he said, I worked 42 hours a week, and I worked six nights a month. That was it. And I said no to everything else. He cheated the church during that time. Now, he's like me. You talk to him now, he's saying, I'm, I'm spending 60 hours and three nights a week at the church. That's me right now, too. It's so much easier now to be able to do that. And, and frankly, I'm enjoying it. I didn't think I would, but I'm enjoying it, you know? Um, and, and so choosing to cheat is a really, really helpful thing. And, and, and understanding there's going to be different seasons, and those seasons are going to change. And you're going to cheat different things in those seasons. I would highly recommend getting the, the, the book. Um, one of the challenges in this time, though, is, is, and we'll get to this next week when we talk about conflict resolution, because that was a, a big question that we're saving for next week. But um, this is also a time, this season of young families, uh, first 10 years of marriage, okay? This season is also a time when you're going to have some of your worst fights that make no sense, and you say things that you regret for years, uh, that you wish you could take back. And the reason is because you're stressed and fatigued during this season more than any other time. I can't tell you how many of the young marrieds with little kids will tell me the time that they end up in fights is at night. <laughs> That's when it starts happening. That, that, isn't that about the worst time? You're, you're, at, you're, you're, you're at your most tired, you're at your most stressed, and now you're going to throw down. <laughs> What good can come of that? You know, this is why Jackie said last week, sometimes you just got to go to bed. You know, just say, 
I love you. I know who you are. I know what the gospel says. I love you. Let's go to sleep, and let's work on this tomorrow morning. Sometimes that's the best decision that you can make in that regard. Um, I would also argue, you know, I, again, here you go. We do date nights. We also, once every six months, no matter what, we spend three hours together, the, different places, just a bit. We spend three hours together asking those questions. What are we doing? How's it looking? What do we need to change? Where do we want to be in five years? And we spend time on it. And sometimes we come out of that meeting going, nothing's really changed. We're doing good. Sometimes we come out of the meeting with a whole new vision. But we do it every six months. Or mad. Or mad, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. Sometimes mad. <laughs> and then we work on it the next morning. Uh -huh. So we do that as well. We have date nights. We do that. Here's something uh, that, that um, we used to do, too, that uh, I found great benefit in this. I did. Uh, and I was doing it ostensibly for her, but I found great benefit in this. Once a week, I took the kids, and Jackie got to go and do whatever she wanted to do. It was date night for me and Jack, uh, Shelby and Darby. So I had two date nights every week. One was with her, one was with our kids. And the kids looked forward to it most of the time. I took them once to um, Long John Silver's for dinner, and they never let me forget that. That was the worst <laughs> night we ever had. <laughs> They never wanted fish again. So it's like, come on, I try something new. But, uh, but Jackie would go and do whatever she wanted on that night. Most of the time it was playing volleyball. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what she wanted to do with that night. So that was really helpful. But here are two, here, um, I'm sorry, here are three others. Car rides. We would look forward to getting in the car. We would redeem car rides, right? Mm -hmm. We loved that, didn't we? Yeah, still do. Still do. We redeem car rides. Um, phone calls, you know, the upside of cell phones is that you can stay in touch. The downside of cell phones is that you can stay in touch. I get that. But the upside is that you can also stay in touch now. And so we're, we're, we don't, we, if we go through a day and we haven't spoken to each other, we feel weird. Yeah. So we're on the phone with each other. We find time every single day to get on the phone with each other. And then here's, here's another one. Uh, this is harder to schedule. We're we've always tried hard to schedule it. Most of the time, it's, it's more impromptu. It's more um, just spur of the moment. But, but it's a tech-free walk together. A tech-free walk. No phones. We're just going to go for a walk. And sometimes we walk the neighborhood. Sometimes we walk the canal. Sometimes it doesn't matter. But, but where we go doesn't matter. It's just that we're walking together. Um, but, but that is not to say that it isn't hard. Uh, show this slide, Stephanie. <laughs> Check this out. <clears throat> yeah, that's not the slide. <laughs> oh, uh, the one I, I sent you about the parenting, the... <laughs> They're in a little perch. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to read this to you. Yeah. I, I saw this on my Twitter feed. I was redeeming time on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I saw this. How to be a parent in 2017. Make sure your children's academic, emotional, psychological, mental, spiritual, physical, nutritional, and social needs are met 
while being careful not to overstimulate, understimulate, improperly medicate, helicopter, or neglect them in a screen-free, processed foods-free, GMO-free, negative energy-free, plastic-free, body-positive, socially conscious, egalitarian, but also authoritative, nurturing, but fostering of independence, gentle, but not overly permissive, pesticide-free, two-story, multilingual home, preferably in a cul-de-sac with a backyard and 1.5 siblings spaced at least two years apart for proper development. Also, don't forget the coconut oil. <laughs> How to be a parent in literally every generation before ours. Feed them sometimes. <laughs> now, that is an exaggeration but there's truth there, isn't that? Isn't there? There's truth pressure. there. A lot of pressure. It's hard to be, a, I, you know, I just think it's harder now in many ways. Not in all ways, but in many ways. So, all right, talk a little bit about the idea I of the sanctuary. Yeah, I, I think I'm gonna speak to the second part okay. of the question. Um, let's see, I have to read that on there because it's nowhere else. Um, What's this, what specifically worked for you to be intentional with your spouse to focus on the health of your marriage? Did you have a daily or weekly routines that allowed you to connect aside from date nights that worked well for you? Um, yes, we did. Um, but we didn't at first. You know, you just, you're just kind of slogging it out at first to see what works and, and you're trying things and, and that's okay. Um, so I, I say that to tell you that, you know, we're not gurus of any kind, but this is what we did. And I think it is really important that you look at your life and your relationship, your jobs, and you can't just take what we did and say, okay, we'll do that. Um, you have to, you can generally, but um, because of Frank being a pastor and us having two kids and they're four years apart, we're different than you guys. So you're going to have to look at it. But um and, and our personalities are big play in that as well, right? Some people can have, you know, 12 people over every day and um, entertain them, you know, for hours on end, and, and that feeds them, you know? And some people, Sean, need to <laughs> be alone <laughs> and need to have quiet time and don't really want to be around people and all that. And you might have married and might be totally, you might be those two people at the exact same time. So that's something you have to figure out too. But... Um, over, I would say, the first five-ish years of our marriage, um, after we had, had one child, um, I remember the night that Frank came home and said, wow, you're so grumpy every night when I come home. <laughs> and I thought, you're kind of a jerk. No. I'm an encourager. <laughs> no. Definitely no. an encourager. <laughs> but but it, after I was done being upset about that statement, because <laughs> I probably had barf on me and other things, you know, I'd cleaned the kitchen three times after they'd spilled and, you know, all that stuff. And he wasn't there for any of it. Um, I'm getting my digs in, aren't I? Yeah. It's been good. This has um, been good for you. This is good yeah. therapy. <laughs> no. Um, it made me look at it and say, okay, I am kind of grouchy. Why am I grouchy, you know? And, and then that spurred on me to start to think, okay, this isn't going to work because, <laughs> you know, if he's gone all day and I'm here all day and we don't get to spend that time together and then when we are together, we're kind of like, eh, you know, um, that's not, that can't possibly be good for us. And, um, and so we, that was kind of when we started talking about, like, what do you want? What do you want it to look like when you get home? Do you understand what my day has been like? 
you know, all those things to just kind of put it all out there. And then, um, so through that, many conversations, um, I came up with this idea of a sanctuary in our home. And it, and it came from um, figuring out what Frank needed and, and what I could do about that, because I can't do everything about what he needs. Um, and then also what I wanted it to look like and what he could do to help me to make it look that way. And then we worked together to do those things, but we first had to know what they were. And so we had to have multiple conversations and write things down and, and, and just really talk it out. And, um, and, and it happens a little bit later in your relationship because then you have kind of really figured each other's stuff out, you know, what, what triggers you, what bothers you, all those things. You've kinda, you kind of have a good grip on them by then. And so um, we came up with this idea of our, we needed our home to be a sanctuary. And so for Frank, and the way he could have sanctuary was um, for me to, when, when, I would, when I, he would get home at first, he would go and he would take the kids for a minute. And he'd just let me just like go freshen up or take a shower if I hadn't taken a shower or, or um, really just kind of um, take a breath, you know, not ha be the one that was doing everything every second at home. Um, but I also recognized that he'd been at work all day. And so um, in the mornings, I don't bug him. And we still do this exact same routine, even though our life has changed. In the morning, I know that he needs his time. And, and, and it works out for me nice because I don't like to talk in the morning anyway. But, um, Th that but has worked it very interesting. <laughs> I have the most energy in the morning, and she doesn't like to talk in the morning. So yeah. that actually has worked out well for us. Yeah. But we had to figure that stuff out. And, um, and it's funny because um, just even last week, many of you have, don't even know who I am until I sat up here last week. And, um, and I think maybe you think that's strange, some of you. And then also, um, you just wonder about it, you know. Um, but that was part of what we figured out, that we couldn't um, um, work in the, we couldn't both work in the church in the same exact areas. Not because we couldn't do it well, because we worked for years together well. We work well together. In the retail business. Yeah, yeah we, work, we work very well together. But it was the crossover of the same conversations. Um, you know, something would happen, it would happen to both of us, and so it was like, nah, 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 you know, whereas when it only happens to one person, you just kind of listen, and you go, oh, okay, you know, that's, that's bad, or that's great, or whatever it is, but when it happens to both of you, um, you just respond differently to it, and you, you've kind of feed it a little bit, and so we figured that out, and so um, that's kind of why I'm in the background here, because we try not to work at the same place, at the same time, doing the same thing. Um, because we know that we need that. We, for us, um, it, that way Frank doesn't come home and we start into that conversation and he never gets to leave work. Um, so we found that that helped us. And, um, but these are things that you, you, you have to figure out for yourselves. You know what triggers. I mean, sometimes you do it on purpose to trigger it, right? So you know what they are. So. <laughs> Again, decide, what do, you, what do you want your life to look like? What do you want your day after work to look like? How do you want um, you know, the rest of your evening to go? Figure those things out and get really honest and, and go for those things. And so that was part of sanctuary. It's not that just he needs a sanctuary, but it helped us with our sanctuary. I wasn't as crabby because he came home and he you know, helped me for a minute and we understood that and it worked. And we did, that was something we do all the time. 
It's constant maintenance. It's not, oh, yeah, we're, we're in trouble, let's it. fix it, yeah. let's find out. You know, you get into a little bit of trouble before you figure it out, but, but it's constant, and we still do it to this day. Even though we, we've changed some of those things, we've revamped them a little bit, but we still do them. A couple other things. Um, this, this is tangential, but I think helpful too. Uh, when Jackie and I realized we were gonna start having children, uh, we very intentionally started uh, looking at uh, friends of ours who were couples who had kids that were older, that were into sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grade that we admired, that we enjoyed being around, and we started hanging around those parents, and we started picking their brains about how to parent. Um, and frankly, I got a lot of, personally, for me, I got a lot of my parenting direction from Schrader. He was a great parent, and he has two wonderful daughters that, um, uh, I, I really appreciated things that I learned from him, but we would hang around couples specifically because we wanted to find out how they parented their children um, because their, their children were a delight to be around. So that was, that was something that helped us. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I realized, again, this may be tangential, but I think this is important. Especially as I've, as I've gotten older, um, I've begun to realize that um, money spent creating memories is way better spent money than money buying stuff. Way better. Mm -hmm. And I, I've learned this, please hear me, I've learned this because now that our kids are older, when they come and they say, Dad, we remember when we went on this trip together. We remembered when we did this together. Um, that's better than any computer or gadget or car or anything that I've ever purchased in my life. That, those are great, great uh, things. And um, uh, so I would, I would just um, think about that as well. Spending time, um, it, somebody said it this way, um, uh, kids need their parents' time more than they need their dime, okay? And that's true. So, and I know that's hard, but that's, that's uh, really true to be, to be able to spend time with them. Um, there was something else. Oh, yeah. Um, all of this relates to, it's been said, and I think this is true, um, you don't really start to learn how to be married until about the 10th year of your marriage. That's when you start to kind of figure some things out. And you've heard Jackie make those comments already a couple of times uh, like that, that you're trying to figure some stuff out. And I remember last fall when we did Song of Solomon, one of the nights I said this, I said, I said I've been married to Jackie 30 years now, I would make a great young husband and father now, now that I have 30 years under my belt. Okay, do, do you see the point I'm trying to make though? You're learning, this is hard. You're gonna, trial and error, you're gonna fail at some of these things. Learn from your mistakes and soldier on. Um, allow, uh, as, as James says, the, the fiery trial to mold your character and not defeat you by the power of the gospel. Um, we're a little bit late, but could we take one question maybe, or do we have any questions? No? Okay, cool. Well, then I'm going to pray, and we're going to move on. And if you have questions, follow-up questions for this topic, send them in uh, to Stephanie, and we'll try to get to them at the beginning of next week. But next week, we're going to talk primarily about uh, conflict resolution. And let me give you just a little bit of a preview. There are conflict resolution styles and strategies and then there's a different approach to conflict resolution called understanding conflict resolution behaviors, good and bad.
And, and um, I, I want to hit you with both of those because I had a deeply profound experience of my own with that that we want to share uh, that we think might be helpful to many of you. Those of you who haven't been through premarital with me, um, you, 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 um, you might be helped by, by what we have to say next week in, in regards to that. Okay. Uh, do you want to pray or do you want me to pray? Okay. Uh, Lord God, I just pray that uh, this would be uh, a tool that, that you would use by the filling of your Holy Spirit uh, for people to, uh, to be able to uh, understand marriage a little bit better and to be able to uh, press into, first, the power of the gospel and the filling of your spirit, and second of all, to press into your wisdom uh, and to gain experience and, and understanding on, on how things might be handled a little bit differently, not perfectly, uh, because we're fallen and we're sinners, but maybe differently. So I pray that that would happen somehow um, by your working, by your sovereignty. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.